WDBM East Lansing. The Impact. And now, Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. Good evening, I'm Abby Newton, and you're listening to Impact 88.9 FM. It is July 2nd, two days before Independence Day, the birth of our nation, and a holiday celebrated with friends, family, barbecues, and fireworks. To celebrate, we'll be playing a few patriotic tunes throughout the evening, and we also will have Edward Jock, a Michigan State history professor, and to talk about the holiday. Later on the show, two law professors will join Jock to discuss the many decisions made by the Supreme Court last week. Feel a little lost? No fear, we have a breakdown coming very soon. Now lastly, Impact talked to Associate Students of Michigan State University President Evan Martinek about the recent turmoil the student government has had with the university. But first, how about today's headlines? More women are dying from prescription painkiller overdoses than ever before, USA Today reports. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention calls this a growing public health epidemic. The CDC study shows that while men are still more likely to die of overdoses, the number of deaths among women increased fivefold in the last decade. This is four times more than deaths in women from cocaine and heroin combined. Now, the rate of prescription drug overdose deaths of women increased 400% from 1999 to 2010, compared with an increase of 250% for men. Now, in other science news, did you know that scientists have been carrying out head transplants on animals since the 1970s, when a monkey's head was moved to another monkey's body? The resulting creature actually survived, paralyzed for a few days, however. But so far, no one has attempted to put a human head on a different human body. That's because, in part, they haven't had a way to properly connect the donor's body's spinal cord up to the head. So the head-body hybrid would be paralyzed from the transplant area. Uh, But a new paper by an Italian neuroscientist says the technology now exists for such linkage. The method would sever both spinal cords in the same way used to fuse spines in dogs. We will continue to watch this trend. Now, in international news... Egypt could be headed toward a collision between the Islamist government and its opponents. On Tuesday, the Associated Press reports that the military threatened to toss out a controversial constitution in the legislature unless President Mohamed Morsi addresses the demands of their massive protest movement. Now, the army has no intention to take power, but it's ready to replace Morsi and make a sweeping change in the political structure. Morsi has not taken action on the threat yet, and as of now, seven people have been killed in the Egypt protests. Come from 
Welcome back to Exposure. I'm Abby Newton. Now, between gay marriage, affirmative action, and voting rights, the Supreme Court was very busy in the last week. The hottest issues seemed to be rulings on gay marriage, but we also had a lot of dispute on the Voting Rights Act. Today, we're going to break down each of the cases, however, and the decisions and the impact. In the studio, I have MSU law professor May Kirkendale and MSU history professor Edward Jock, who is also a lawyer, and he teaches constitutional history. Welcome. Thank you. Hello. Happy holiday. <laughs> you too. Happy, happy fourth. <laughs> and also joining us from New York City over the phone is MSU law professor Michael Sanambrogio. Welcome. Hi. Thanks, Abby. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. All right. So let's start off by talking about the cases surrounding gay marriage. So there were two of them. The first was around the Defense of Marriage Act. Um, it was Windsor v. U.S. So May, what is the Defense of Marriage Act, just for beginners? Well, the Defense of Marriage Act was passed in 1996 when there was first realization that some state might at some point have uh, local law, state law, allowing gay people to marry or people of the same sex. So Congress, in a um, reaction to what seems so odd, passed the uh, Defense of Marriage Act that had two main parts. Let me say quickly, the big one that we were dealing with this time was that the federal government uh, said that marriage has only one meaning for anything that the federal government does. It's only a, a marriage between a man and a woman. So at that point, no state had same-sex marriage. But as of today, I believe we're up to 13, and we've got the District of Columbia. So it's beginning to be a huge number of marriages that states recognize and that uh, the federal government said, no, they don't exist. Okay. And Michael, what was the Supreme Court case about surrounding Defense of Marriage Act? Well, it involved a lawsuit filed by Edith Windsor, um, and she sought a refund of over $300,000 in estate taxes that had been levied on the estate of her deceased spouse, uh, Thea Spire. The couple had met kind of more than 40 years ago, um, and then had been married more recently, 
after a very long, long engagement. Um, and uh, their marriage was recognized by New York State, but not by the federal government because of the DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act. And so um, Windsor argued that DOMA, or Section 3 of DOMA, which prohibited the recognition of same-sex marriage for federal law purposes, um, she argued that it denied her equal protection of the laws as guaranteed by the Constitution. And the Supreme Court agreed in an opinion that um, was written by Justice Kennedy and uh, 5-4 opinion, five justices agreed with her reasoning. Okay. Is this what you expected? I personally did uh, predict that they would declare it unconstitutional. And um, there's a criticism of Justice Kennedy's opinion as follows. Uh, he's very interested in states' rights, so he had a long, long passage talking about how unusual it was for the federal government to preempt the definition that the states were using for marriage, and gave some examples. Uh, well, and he said, actually, though, that, the, the, in other words, the states should be able to define marriage for themselves. He said in some cases there have been exceptions, I admit it. For instance, for immigration, the federal, uh, federal government has a slightly different definition. They're more concerned about marriages that are just to get here for economic mm -hmm. reasons. But he, then he said, uh, I'm not deciding it on the grounds of federalism. I'm deciding it on the grounds of uh, the Fifth Amendment, basically meaning equal protection. But because the Fifth Amendment doesn't directly have any reference to equal protection in it, the critics have said, oh, this sounds like the forbidden substantive due process, which one of our, some of our listeners may not know about. Uh, but that means like the idea that the that the, the court can read into the idea of due process something of substance. So they were afraid that Kennedy is saying, I am making new, up new rights, that due mm -hmm. process requires that people be able to marry. But really he was just saying the equal protection has become part of the Fifth Amendment and um, states generally have these rights. And you add on to it equal protection and this thing is just not a good law. Okay. And Edward, as a professor in constitutional history, what do you make of kind of what um, the justice was saying in that sense? Actually, one of the things, there was a case, I can't, it's, it's skipping my mind right now. There was a, a woman, office, female officer in the Army, and her husband was not entitled to uh, benefits as a spouse mm -hmm. and <clears throat> she sued the federal government saying that if she were a, a male officer regardless of what the spouse did or how much the spouse made they would be entitled to military benefits but the way it was set up for women was the, the male spouse had to make over 50 or she had to be more than 50 percent be more than supporting him by more than 50 percent mm -hmm. And they ruled, and the Supreme Court ruled in her favor under the Fifth Amendment, also. Okay. So, historically Justice, speaking, Justice Kennedy mm -hmm. was not not too far off in that in that interpretation. Okay. And in, in adopting the Fifth Amendment for that purpose, mm -hmm. even though it doesn't say in the Fifth Amendment equal protection. Well, I did some work that, and I made up the phrase equality federalism. A famous uh, law professor named Andy Koppelman at Northwestern ridiculed Justice Kennedy's opinion as though it's just a mishmash. But I actually think there's something to it. What I'm saying is that the 
uh, feelings about federalism and our strong feelings about equality are somewhat merging in this area where uh, we try to respect federalism, but insofar as it supports equality, mm -hmm. which is uh, maybe a little too complicated to explain here, but <laughs> Michael can jump in and be more clear for us. But uh, I don't think it was the mishmash that some people think it was. I think it was rather subtle and powerful. One thing to mention in terms of what, does, what is this going to do for us is his equal protection language was extremely strong. And so some people think that um, the conservatives were really wiped out when you combine Perry with um, Windsor, because even though Perry was not decided, and we'll talk about that, mm -hmm. the language that Kennedy was able to use in his Windsor opinion is massively strong. He said that refusing to recognize marriages that the states have created is uh, demeans the dignity of gay people and humiliates their children, which is a critical piece of his equal protection reasoning. And so it in stated effect, that. I'm sorry, he's saying, what did you say? I'm it sorry. did state that in his decision. Yes, it's in and his wow. opinion that it humiliates their children. Mm -hmm. So uh, Justice Scalia was furious because he said that we've been charged with crimes against human decency because, in effect, Kennedy is saying that the only motive is to uh, hurt uh, same-sex couples and even to hurt their children. And uh, that strong language for the next case, which would be uh, in Michigan. We now have, did you know that? Uh, yesterday, I guess it was, Judge Friedman said that a lawsuit can proceed. Uh, two women have sued to say that the uh, constitutional provision in Michigan that says no gay marriage is unconstitutional. And they are going to be using that language from the defense of marriage case, which was, you know, about mm -hmm. the federal government recognizing. So his language is extremely powerful. Maybe Michael would. Yeah, Michael, would you like well, anything? I, Go ahead. Sure. I would. I would. I mean, I think that, um, you know, each side in the, in the, the marriage wars is going to um, read something different into the opinion. And the big debate going forward is going to be how broadly it can be interpreted. And so, you know, specifically, how important to the court's holding was the fact that the marriages that DOMA refused to recognize were marriages recognized by the states, and that marriage was traditionally regulated by the states. This was uh, something that, uh, uh, that Kennedy, you know, seemed to emphasize in the opinion. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, will it be a different case when you're, the question is whether states are required to um, make same-sex marriage available. Nevertheless, there's plenty in the opinion that the advocates of same-sex marriage can probably cite going forward. Um, at first, as May mentioned, uh, there was this recognition about the harm um, that placing same-sex relations as a second-class status uh, worked on both the couples and their children. Okay. Um, and secondly, the court, you know, reemphasized that state regulation of marriage, while states generally do regulate marriage, it's still subject to constitutional constraints. And the court made clear that a bare desire to harm a politically unpopular group cannot justify disparate treatment of that group. Um, and it found evidence of this desire to harm in the numerous um, expressions in the congressional record of moral disapproval of homosexuality when DOMA was enacted. And so I think as we're looking around to these uh, so-called mini-DOMAs, similar state laws or state constitutional amendments that prohibit uh, recognition of same-sex marriage, um, the cases will be focusing on 
uh, you know, what did the legislature say um, or others um, who put these, uh, these ballot initiatives on the, on the ballot, what did they say about uh, homosexual, homosexuality and same-sex marriages, and were they motivated by this desire to harm a politically unpopular group? And, you know, I think um, there was a Michigan case that, that, that May uh, noted about uh, same-sex marriage. There was also, just a few days ago, um, the Bassett versus Snyder case mm-hmm. um, in which the Eastern District of Michigan relied significantly on the Doma opinion to hold that Michigan's law, which prohibits public employers from providing medical and other benefits to same-sex partners, that it violated the equal protection guarantee of the Constitution. It relied on the Windsor case and did not seem um, troubled by the fact that uh, Windsor was really focused on a federal law upsetting um, the balance between the federal government and the states with regard to regulating marriage. So I think that, you know, each side is going to see different things in this opinion, and, and the battle is going to continue to go forward. Okay, so it's almost just a starting point. <laughs> the, uh, that Eastern District case that he's speaking about, mm-hmm. the judge actually wrote, that you can't argue with a straight face that the, that the legislature was not biased when it made the law wrote the law okay. because of their debates about sex, sexual orientation and so on and so forth. One of the other things that I don't understand that they never addressed was the DOMA also made it so states did not have to, each individual state did not have to recognize another state's marriage. And as an historian, I look at the, the Constitution and I look at the full faith and credit portion of the Constitution, mm-hmm. and I'm not so sure that Congress can say a state doesn't have to honor something else. Because could you explain state. the full faith and credit? The full faith and credit mm-hmm. section of the Constitution tells, tells us that one state has to honor another state's issues or mm-hmm. laws. Uh, it has to do with extradition. It has to do with uh, contracts. When the con- when the Constitution was originally written, it was actually a, a financial document, and John Marshall used it as a financial document, saying if somebody makes a contract in Virginia, it has to be upheld in New York. And regardless of whether you like the contract or not, because it's a legal contract in in the state that it was made. Mm-hmm. And today, or when DOMA was passed, they said you don't have to do that. And I don't think that, I was always hesitant about that portion of DOMA. So that can open a whole new ball game. Like, yes, May. Oh, well, I'd like to mention, just to go back to the part about you can't give it any credit mm-hmm. as being anything but bias. That's what I want to, you know, give Scalia a little bit of a plug here to just uh, you know, recognize what he has to say about that. And what he said consistently for years is moral disapproval is a, f- a valid basis for legislation. So the fact that a lot of moral disapproval is expressed for him does not uh, 
not, not, doesn't hamper the constitutionality of legislation. He wants to strongly argue that much legislation reflects moral views. So I want to give him that, even though I come out on the other side. And the second thing on the thing about rec DOMA's uh, Section 2, which says you don't, no state has to recognize any aspect of another marriage, that's not the whole ball game because states already, before DOMA was enacted, could say it's against our public policy to have this kind of marriage. So before DOMA was ever enacted, states would be able to say, if somebody came from a country that had polygamy, they say, no, it's against our public policy. Mm -hmm. So Feb the, the uh, full faith and credit tends to have to do with court judgments more than with something like a status so uh, or, you know, some sort of public... Uh, act. So that means that DOMA, even if Section 2 were declared unconstitutional, would not necessarily go to the pre-existing public policy interests that states have had to disavow some marriages, including, say, bigamous marriages. Mm -hmm. um, so one other point to make on that is that um, DOMA may be unconstitutional because it so much raises the stakes on what other states can say they don't recognize to the extent it, it sort of becomes dumb. There was a Koppelman wrote something calling DOMA dumb because it wiped out so many potential rights they didn't even know what they were wiping out when they said for no purpose whatsoever uh, is there any recognition of a marriage made between two people of the same sex. Let me work in this one thing and then you got to take it back. Mm -hmm. um, Michigan, this is going to be an issue. Uh, Obama has to figure out how aggressive he's going to be. The idea is now that any lawful marriage is recognized by the federal government. But that phrase is, in to, some, in to some extent, circular. If I'm married in New York and I live in New York and I'm of the same sex as my partner, I have a lawful marriage. But query, if I go to New York from Texas and they are willing, New York is willing to marry me to someone of the same sex, and I immediately return to Texas, Texas is going to say, that didn't work. We don't let you do that to us. Our, our law. So was that a lawful marriage? It was in New York, but, but under the pre-existing understanding, Texas doesn't have to recognize it. For that matter, they don't have to recognize it if you've lived in New York, is married for 10 years, and your employer relocates you to Texas. Texas can say it's against our public policy. We don't recognize it. So is, the, is Obama going to write or, you know, do whatever he has to do within the bureaucracy, rules that say any marriage uh, that anybody enters into lawfully while they're in a state remains a marriage, no matter where they live, no matter when they made the move. That's one of the big questions that's uh, now going to be addressed by Obama and will be addressed <laughs> by more litigation. And I don't know if my, Michael or Jack wants to talk about it. We've got a lot of fine print going on. It's, you, one of the things the in the Eastern District, uh, Judge Friedman said when he was going to bring it up, he says he wants to make the determination whether marriage is a fundamental right. And I'm sorry, but in Loving versus Virginia in 1967, they said marriage is a fundamental right. And that just legitimated any interracial marriages. Okay. Um, now let's go ahead and move on to Prop 8 now. Um, we're going to... <laughs> um, can you explain Prop 8, Michael? Sure. Um, well, just let me begin by saying that, of course, many of these questions that we just identified that are going to be raised going forward could have been answered in the Proposition 8 uh, case, but weren't because the court kind of essentially dodged the, the issue. But the Proposition 8 case was Perry versus Hollingsworth, and there 
the plaintiffs were same-sex couples who wanted to get married and challenged Proposition 8, mm -hmm. which was a ballot initiative in California that amended the California state constitution to prohibit same-sex marriage. So this is one of those mini-domas that I had, had talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. um, the lower federal court, the federal district court, held that Proposition 8 did violate the Equal Protection Clause. Um, and the Supreme Court heard arguments in the case, but ultimately concluded that it didn't have, have jurisdiction um, to decide the issue on the merits. So we got no merits opinion out of that. Um, and I can explain uh, why um, they uh, uh, decided they didn't have jurisdiction. It's, it's a, a little complicated, but I'll try to make it short, because there's something interesting about it going forward. Mm -hmm. um, essentially, in the federal district court, when it held that Proposition 8 was unconstitutional, the state of California decided not to appeal the decision. Um, and at that point, the proponents of the ballot initiative, those who put this ballot, Proposition 8, on the ballot, um, they stepped in to appeal the decision and defend the law's constitutionality. But the, um, the court said that they did not have what's called standing to appeal the decision of the lower court. Um, the Constitution limits federal courts to deciding what's called in the Constitution cases or controversies. And the Supreme Court has interpreted this to mean that the litigant must, have a, must seek a remedy for a personal harm, a personal harm to them. Um, and a long line of cases, the court has held that kind of a generalized grievance that the law is not being enforced is not enough. It has to be some, you have to be harmed in some personal way. Mm -hmm. And the court held that the proponents of Proposition 8 had not been harmed in any personal way. They had not been ordered by the court to do anything or refrain from doing anything. And therefore, they weren't proper litigants, proper appellants in the case. Now, the interesting thing about this is, of course, it gives the uh, executive branch in states a lot of power, because if the executive branch decides, as they did in California, not to appeal a decision holding a citizen's initiative unconstitutional, that is um, likely to be the end of the case. Um, and so uh, there, that's the difference between what happened in the California case and in the DOMA case, whereas uh, the Obama administration agreed that DOMA was unconstitutional. They actually appealed the decision up to the courts, and um, the, the court addressed the merits of the DOMA case because they held they had jurisdiction to do so because the parties were proper parties before the court. But in the California case, they weren't. Um, and so therefore, we got no opinion on whether there is a uh, fundamental right to um, same-sex marriage or whether it violates the Equal Protection Clause not to um, recognize same-sex marriages. And do you think that we'll continue to see cases similar, trying to, you know, keep pushing for the same-sex marriage? Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, and I, I, I think, um, yeah, it's going to go on, and it's probably going to be more and more cases, I think, across the country. Meanwhile, in California, the lower court decision now stands because the appeal was not proper, and mm -hmm. therefore there is, once again, same-sex marriage in California. Okay, and like you mentioned earlier, Michigan already even is becoming well, already big. already a case mm -hmm. starting. Right. In California, the law professors do love to argue. I'm on a something called con law prof listserv, mm -hmm. and there's massive argument because the uh, district court issued an injunction saying don't enforce Prop 8, but it was uh, there was a stay of its injunction, uh, and the Ninth Circuit put a stay on their holding. 
but the question is that they've been arguing about is to whom does the injunction apply because it wasn't a class action. Uh, while they argued about it, the stay was lifted by the Ninth Circuit and couples in, and the, and I had said on the listserv and been ignored, like, what matters is what Governor Brown is going to do and what the Attorney General is going to do. So as soon as the stay was lifted, the Attorney General went and presided over a marriage of one of the mm -hmm. parties. But in addition to that, San Francisco stayed open all weekend. And I don't know how many couples have married. It must be thousands by now. While the law professors, of which I'm one, has been arguing about whether the injunction applied uh, to require uh, California to marry anybody except the two couples who litigated the case. Uh, so that's still something they would argue about, and there could be attempts to re you know, continue litigation in California, but I'm not exactly sure now where the traction would be to try mm -hmm. to do further litigation. There might be a clerk in California who would say, I'm not doing it because I wasn't a party, but they've been ordered by both the governor and the attorney general to issue licenses. Okay. Now, um, oh, go ahead, Michael. I was just going to add that, um, you know, one of the, the open questions going forward that we thought would be resolved in one of these two cases and wasn't, in, in, uh, wasn't resolved in either of them is whether uh, classifications based on sexual orientation are subject to what's called heightened scrutiny. Mm -hmm. um, so traditionally, um, in equal protection analysis, the court has uh, used different levels of scrutiny um, for different classifications. So racial classifications are subject to strict scrutiny, um, which is very um, difficult to satisfy. Um, and uh, most regular classifications are subject to um, what's called rational basis review. And uh, I think most people agree that it would be very hard for these classifications to survive any type of heightened uh, scrutiny. Uh, but it hasn't been um, made, the Supreme Court has not made clear whether they are subject to heightened scrutiny. And they obviously didn't answer that in the Perry case. And unfortunately, they didn't, Kennedy did not answer that in his majority opinion in the, um, the DOMA case either, although the issue was argued by all the parties in, in both the cases. Could okay. I jump in there just quickly? Mm -hmm. uh, somebody asked me about why, given all that's happened in the cases the court has heard, why is it never uh, elevated sexual orientation to either intermediate scrutiny or strict scrutiny? And my answer is that they're very hesitant to create new uh, categories that are subject to strict scrutiny. An example I gave from some many years ago is that the developmentally disabled were being given disadvantageous treatment in zoning in Texas, and Justice White, who's not who's now gone, mm -hmm. uh, said we don't want to give it anything but rational basis review. Although he gave assistance to the um, developmentally disabled, because sometimes the legislature acts to help the developmentally disabled. My view in sexual orientation would be maybe they want to quit treating sexual orientation as any big deal. And if you were to say it's a classification subject to strict scrutiny, that actually means people who are on either side of the divide have a case uh, if they feel that there's some law that discriminates against them. So I think it makes a certain amount of sense. What Kennedy's been doing is saying rational basis review and being vague, uh, but then saying it's animus. 
So ordinarily with strict scrutiny, you've got to say uh, it's a politically powerless minority, it's the subject of discrimination, blah, blah, blah. He doesn't want to create that as a standard methodology for sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. He just wants to say some laws don't pass muster. Uh, they're too suspect in my mind in terms of why they're there. They don't make good sense. They don't serve a good function, and I'm declaring them unconstitutional. When we get over that, then it would sort it would begin to be why should sexual orientation be uh, have heightened scrutiny? We're all in this together. That would be a little bit of in my mind what he's thinking. And that will be a question that will continue to be asked. Exactly. Um, to turn the tables a little bit, we're going to talk about one more really um, big case that was decided this week about the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Edward, do you want to touch on that and talk about what the case was about and what happened? I know you were pretty steamed about it. Well, I'm not steamed about <laughs> it. I just think it was a very bad decision. Mm -hmm. um, the Voting Rights Act was originally written in 1965 to protect members of minority groups be, to have voting rights to so that legislators or legislatures, depending on which way you want to look at it, would not have the power to prevent a group from voting and to diminishing their vote. Uh, and over the, this period of time, it's been ratified or been rewritten or, or re-ratified, if you will, a uh, number of times it was, and the most recent was I think it was in 2007, and it was mm -hmm. ratified for 25 years or reissued for another 25 years. Mm -hmm. And I've read that opinion by Justice Roberts, and he starts talking about how history is. This is what the history was, and he talks about the debates in uh, in Congress or in the Constitutional Convention in uh, the 18th century about how this was the, they wanted the states to have the rights. And they said that they, even in the Bill of Rights, they wrote the Tenth Amendment saying anything that's not given to this, to this, uh, not directly given to the, the federal government mm -hmm. is reserved to the states. And He's rewritten some of the Constitution, too. He's uh, he used the word explicit, which is not in the Constitution, by the way. And <clears throat> one of the things that he he says is, you know, and it's, he says it was an old law. And just because something is old does not mean that it's no good. You know, we have laws that are, you know, that are old and rationale that that's old and we don't give it up just because of age uh, and even though Robert Justice Roberts is talking about uh, these what was done in the during the Constitutional Convention what seems to slip his mind was the 15th Amendment specifically says Congress shall have the right to make appropriate laws to enforce this mm -hmm. uh, there's up until the Civil War, after the Civil War, there were, with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, there were never, uh, there was never anything about Congress making any laws. And one of the reasons why they put those, that last phrase in the, in the amendments was because of Dred Scott. Mm -hmm. They didn't want the Supreme Court to overrule what Congress wanted them to do. And in this case, they make the law 
saying you can't discriminate in Voting Rights Act, and the Supreme Court says you can't make there, that, that part is unconstitutional. How can you have something that's in the Constitution being unconstitutional? It's illogical. Uh, would, so, okay, uh, Michael and May, would you like to tune in on that? Can I add something? I just, I, one thing I want to make clear, though, is that, that not the entire um, Voting Rights Act was, was struck down here. Um, uh, in particular, Section 2, which actually bans practices or procedures um, that result in the abridgment of, a, of the right to vote, that is still good law, and that was not touched or nor challenged by this lawsuit. So um, the specific provision that was challenged um, was Section 4, uh, which uh, basically has the formula for determining which jurisdictions must seek pre-clearance from the Department of Justice when they want to change their voting procedures. Okay. Um, and this was what uh, Justice Roberts was uh, felt was unconstitutional because they had not changed the coverage formula, the formula for de uh, determining which states were subject to this preclearance requirement. And these, by the way, as you'd imagine, are all uh, states, uh, were mostly states in the South and a few jurisdictions elsewhere. Um, but they had not changed this for more than 40 years. Um, it was based on a formula that had uh, that in, 19, in the 1960s and 1970s um, determined uh, that these particular states had used previously prohibited voting tests and also had low voter registration and, and, and low voter uh, voter turnout. And so Robert says, you know, you've got to have some new uh, evidence. This formula is based on something that happened 40 years ago. Um, if you're going to single out these states, you have to have new um, a new formula to do that um, based with current conditions. Okay. Now, this was but not completely Michael. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, we have to head out now, oh, but um, thank okay. you very much for breaking this down. That was very helpful, and it was a surprising, but a little bit predictable, as you would say, week uh, in the Supreme Court. And thank you again, Michael, Edward, and May with MSU sure. Law and History. Thank you, and bye, Michael. <laughs> thank, thank you. Bye-bye. Everybody had a notion across the USA. Then everybody'd be served like California. You'd see them wearing their baggies, Warachi sandals too. A bushy, bushy blonde hair serving USA. You'll catch them serving at Ventura County.
appreciate students of Michigan State University, Michigan State Student Government, has been in a battle with the university officials for quite some time now. ASMSU operated on its own funds off campus, but on Friday, a decision was made to move the funds on campus, making it a university department. Impact's Miguel Martinez sat down with Vice President of Internal Affairs, Teresa Bittner, to get the full story and the reaction. I'm sitting here with Teresa Bittner, Vice President of Internal Administration for ASMSU, and we're here to discuss some of the conflicts that you guys have been having with the university. Yep. Um, yeah, actually, um, for the past couple of weeks or whatever, it kind of started last Friday at the Board of Trustees meeting, where we they passed a resolution to enforce a more strict deadline of July 1st to move our off-campus accounts on campus, and if we don't comply with this, they were threatening to take away our student tax and change it um, in the fall. So this started, I mean, we've been hearing about some of the conflicts you guys have been having with the university for a couple of months now. What are the, where did the conflicts start or what are they involving? Um, well, it actually all kind of started two years ago um, when they first started to notice, I guess what had happened was we had external audits and there was finding those external audits that the university did not like. Um, however, these findings were all caused be because of an MSU employee that was handling our accounting processes. And this was from 2007 until 2011. And now we have um, our own ASMSU employee doing our accounting. And we have had clean audits ever since, but um, the whole issue stemmed from those 2007-2011 audits that were conducted with an MSU accounting employee. So after the audits, uh, what exactly did MSU want from you guys? What did they want to do? Um, they were saying that as students, our budget is almost too much money for us to handle. And we have these off-campus accounts that um, only ASMSU students and our business office manager can access. The university has no say over how we take the money out of those accounts. But however, our general, our general assembly, which is elected by the students, those representatives have to pass a bill or have to pass some sort of um, yeah, bill that says that we can take money out of those accounts. And so there's no fraud and no embezzlement that happens from those accounts. And it's pretty much an emergency fund. We don't use it unless we need to, unless we, because we don't have insurance. So we, that was told we should do this because we don't have insurance was what had happened. Um, so what are some examples of things you might use those funds for? Um, well, our investment fund is not touched. You know, it's a Morgan Stanley account. And then we have a PNC account that generally doesn't get touched unless we somehow go over budget, but we haven't in the past. So we really haven't used it. Okay, so with the university wanted, wanting to transfer those funds to themselves, um, did that give them more control over how you guys spend the money? Or what, what, what do they want from it, and how is that affecting your group? Um, well, we kind of see it as this power grab because... If they take these off-campus accounts and put them on campus, we really have no say if we disagree with the university in some way. So if they say, no, you can't spend money on going to that conference because it disagrees with our way of university practices, then we have no way of saying, actually, no, we're going on this conference for the students. Like, we think the students should be going on this conference, so we'll use our PNC account and we'll, we'll fund it that way. Or right now, since our summer taxes are being withheld, we can't provide all the services um, we do provide without those off-campus accounts because they've withheld our funds. You know, we don't have all that money. So that's kind of what's keeping us together right now. And then, so how have you guys responded to, to kind of counteract what MSU is trying to do? Or is there anything you guys can do about it? 
Um, well, we have tried to meet with the university officials and tried to compromise on this whole issue at hand, but we have hired independent outside legal counsel. And that's because, you know, we need to know who has the best interest at heart for ASMSU and the students. And if we use MSU counsel, we won't really get that best interest for the students because they will be having the best interest of M MSU. So when we hired that outside legal counsel, the university did not, uh, did not like that. They did not want us to do that. So they refused to meet with us and refused to meet with our leadership and our legal counsel on those terms. And now that we have decided to comply with them, because we passed a bill on Wednesday, we had an emergency GA meeting to pass a bill to move those off-campus accounts on campus, and now we are able to meet with their, um, the university officials and kind of work out a compromise. But it's definitely a lot less of a compromise for us because we've already moved, we're going to move those accounts off on campus no matter what. Okay, and how do you think that's going to affect, I mean, obviously they'll have more control over what you guys are doing, but is that going to affect ASMSU, like, group at all? Um, it won't affect, affect our tax. We'll still be able to have our tax, and we'll still be able to produce the revenue that we've been producing. Um, but it's just kind of make our voice less heard. And one of our, one of our leadership, um, our vice president for programming, he said this, on Twitter or whatever, he said, the university isn't silencing our voice, they're just turning it down. And that's pretty true, you know. Um, we won't be heard as much without these off-campus accounts, but we'll still be able to be heard and we'll still put in the effort to make our voice heard and to make the student's voice heard. Yeah, so since ASMSU aims to be a student voice, do you, do you think this is affecting the students? Have you heard any any reactions from students? How are the students themselves uh, reacting to this? Or do they even do anything? Um, right now it's kind of hard because so many students aren't on campus. You know, we haven't really had that constituent um, interaction, especially because our representatives aren't on campus either, our ASMSU representatives. So we haven't been able to really interact with the students. But from what it sounds like, we hear a lot of, we hear both sides. You know, some of the students are like, no, you guys, ASMSU's in the wrong. Some students are like, no, the university's in the wrong. So it's kind of just, we're, we hear both sides, but it's also hard too because it's hard to get the students to know everything that's been going on with ASMSU and the university because it's been going on for so long. And we try our hardest to inform them, but, you know, state news articles and um, other articles like that don't always have the correct, like, right, both sides, you know, so it's hard. Um, ideally, where would you see this compromise ending or what would your ASMSU's ideal think agreement with uh, Michigan State University be? Um, our, our ideal um, compromise would have been to keep our off-campus off accounts on campus, off campus, but we don't, obviously that's not going to be able to happen, so hopefully they'll just hear us out and hear the concerns that we have as far as um, keeping the employment of our business office manager and maybe finding some sort of compromise to be able to have our own legal counsel outside of the universities just for that best interest um, aspect of it. Um, and just the other exceptions that are going to have to be made for ASMSU because we're not the typical student organization that everyone has on campus. So hopefully they'll hear us out. What do you feel uh, sets ASMSU apart from other student organizations? Or uh, why do you guys feel like you deserve these, you know, off-campus uh, accounts and everything? Um, well, it's because we do all of the services that we provide for the students. And also because we have this tax of $18 a semester, it really makes our revenue a lot larger than the other student groups. And we do fund the, we do give a lot of funding to the other student groups on campus. 
So it's we try to keep sure, make sure that if we have that independence, we can keep giving them independence as well. And then, do you think uh, now that the funds have been moved uh, to the university, do you think the fight's over, or do you think there's anything you guys can still do? Uh, the university can they change their mind on this? Um, I definitely think that that battle is lost. The whole off-campus accounts, on-campus account battle is lost. But there's still an issue where um, they didn't hear us out and they didn't want to communicate with us. So I still think there are some bridges that need to be crossed in, with those issues. So communication with the university, that's where we can grow from this and that's where you feel uh, that the ASMSU and the university can maybe make a better agreement? Yeah, I really hope that we can mend that whole communication aspect that was kind of lost and kind of broken. And hopefully the university will see that we are the student government and we do want to work with them and we want to work with this. I mean, we work for the students. So we all are on the same team here. And, you know, now that the university has a little bit more say on the money, you guys are the voice of the students. You are the student government. So, um... Do you feel this is going to affect the students when they come in in the fall, or how do you think it might affect them? Um, right now, we're not too sure how it's going to affect the students in the fall, but it's definitely going to hinder some of the services we provide. Um, as far as concerts go, we'll still be able to hopefully provide them, but maybe they won't be on such a large scale. Or um, if they don't like, if the university doesn't like the business model we have set up for iClickers, then we're going to have to listen to them and have to comply to those um standards that they want. So there's definitely going to be some influence of the university on the services we provide for the students. Not quite sure how it's going to be, what it's going to look like, but they're definitely going to have a say in that kind of stuff, which could possibly hinder what we provide for the students. But as far as our voice goes on academic governance, um, we'll still be able to advocate on behalf of the students there, and that should not be hindered at all. So that's good. All right, Teresa. Well, is there are there any finishing words? Anything you want the students to know about the situation in the university, or yeah, anything you want to add? Um, I just hope that the students understand that ASMSU is here for the students, and we do care for the students. We stand up for the students, and that you know we have been trying to work with the university. So hopefully that we haven't lost their trust, and we still are here for them if they ever need anything like that. All right. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Now back to Impact Exposure. As we are in the spirit of the fight for independence, the Supreme Court decisions, and well, America, we thought it'd be a good idea to get the facts behind the holiday we call Independence Day. Back with me is Ed Edward, and we're going to talk about it. <laughs> Welcome back. <laughs> That's good to be back. Well, glad. I'm glad to hear that. So tell me about this holiday. Uh, when did it start to be celebrated? Uh, which one? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> well, we call it the 4th of July, and I think the only reason why they call it the 4th of July was the Declaration of Independence was actually dated the 4th of July, but it was signed on the 2nd of July. <laughs> and uh, So today, happy 2nd of yes, July, everybody. Happy 2nd of July. John Adams would be very happy about it. Uh, he wrote to his wife, he said, the second day of July, 1776, will be the most memorable epoch in the history of America. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade and with shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of this continent to the other from this time forward forevermore. And it's his prophecy came true. I think that's the way we celebrate the 4th of July. Uh, the 
the actual signing of the of the Declaration of Independence came about uh, uh, August second of seventeen seventy six. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the last person to sign the Declaration of Independence was in January of uh, 1777. <laughs> but we don't look at... <laughs> it's just a few numbers. Just, uh, those are just fun facts to mm-hmm. know. Uh, right. But the 56 people that signed it, uh, they kept their identity secret for over six months. Because had it gotten out that they had signed this Declaration of Independence, they would have been subject to execution. So they, they kept them kept their identity secret until the war had actually begun. Mm-hmm. Then everybody was would have been subject to execution had they lost. So, um, but the, uh, the history of the, the 4th of July is, is interesting. Um, we look at it in 1776, but it as the year that we became independent and in our Declaration of Independence. But it didn't become a national holiday until 1941. <laughs> so they needed kind of, a party theme. That's yeah, what they it, was, it was kind of like, well, we got nothing else to do. Let's right. just pass a law and explode and something. make it make it a holiday. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, but we. I think you were mentioning that 200 and some odd million dollars. Yes, we found a fact um, because, you know, fireworks are very glamorous on the 4th of July. So there's $218.2 million worth of fireworks imported from China last year for the 4th of July. And then America supplied their own fireworks, but only $11.7 million worth. Well. (laughs) So, you know, we borrowed some. It's no big deal. (laughs) But then when you start figuring that... Something there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 million hot dogs are mm-hmm. going to be eaten on the Fourth of July. Yes, and that's not even counting hamburgers. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and then it's and, interesting too because uh, I don't three, know how much heartburn medication. I hope I hope we're ready. You know, I hope the hospitals are ready. <laughs> um, I guess there's 3.8 million dollars worth of imports of American flags from China as well. And then there's $614,115 worth of U.S. flags here. So it's very diff- it's, it's interesting to see those facts as well. Um, other interesting facts that we found were um, that two presidents, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, actually died on the 50th anniversary of the 4th of July. Uh, one of the interesting things about that was uh, on June 24th of 1826, uh Thomas Jefferson sent a letter to Roger C. Waitman, mm-hmm. and he declined an invitation to come to Washington, D.C. to help celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. Wow. And it was because of his illness, mm-hmm. and he later died next month. Of, uh, and it turned out that that was also the last letter that John uh, Thomas Jefferson ever wrote. Wow, that's interesting. And then uh, the fifth president, James Monroe, died on the 4th of July also in 1831. Oh. And then Calvin Coolidge was the only president ever born on the 4th of July. 
At least we have one, you know. <laughs> That's good. Um, well, those are just some of your 4th of July interesting fun facts. Uh, we also hope that everybody celebrates safely. and Without a doubt. Mm-hmm, and watch, watch those fireworks as well. Enjoy your time on your boat, I hear. Going to watch some good fireworks. Mm-hmm. And don't drink and drive or don't drink and boat. That's right. Exactly. Just stay safe, please. Um, with that, that is all we have today. Just wishing you a happy Independence Day. This is Abby Newton with Impact Exposure 88.9 FM. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been...